Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. Yeah, so, like, it's literally in the name. E-Girl stands for Electronic Girl. So, like, most simply put, an E-Girl is just, like, a young woman who forms her identity primarily online. But since a lot of us do that these days, it's really being able to, like, commodify your identity and make images from that that are, like, really addictive for other people to consume quite literally designed to be effective when mediated through a screen. Scroll through Instagram or TikTok and you'll find her there. The e-girl is perhaps one of the most pervasive digital subcultures of today. Hyper-cute with an artful blend of lo-fi energy with a hyper-connected digital presence, she's hot and very online. She's Bella Hadid with streaks of orange in her hair, and shrunken cardigan. Bella Porch with her pigtails and cargo pants. She's Devon Lee Carson in Y2K flavoured miniskirts. As you can guess, perhaps most importantly, more than typical associations with music or real life destinations, the greatest subcultural symbolizer of an e-girl is her clothes. Biz Sherbert, a cultural writer and trend forecaster, explains more. So I would say e-girl style is really inspired by early 2000s mall goth and punk fashion, but with super hyper cute girly elements. Um, That element of really intense cuteness is pretty important to the e-girl look. And it's also really heavily influenced by uh, like motifs from anime and also the Japanese concept of cuteness, kawaii. So, so much of our lives are mediated through screens now. So I feel that it's like a very natural choice for any young person who's trying to form their identity online. Uh, And I also think it fits well with certain like larger cultural zeitgeists. For example, obviously like the world is like a bit precarious now and has been for a few years. And e-girl fashion and interests are often very cute and childish, which I think can offer this like very nostalgic comfort that is super appealing, especially to young people who I think are the the prime, I wouldn't say the prime demographic for e-girls, but they're really the ones that I think pioneered this culture. The thing about e-girls is that it's, what makes them different than traditional 2010s influencers is that you, it's really hard to imagine them like outside of their bedrooms. Like they're creating these personas and creating these images that have a tendency to be a little emo, be a little moody and emotional, or just like anxious even. So I think that definitely is more of an introverted archetype than a lot of other like social media personas. For a generation who grew up online, subcultures are less about the IRL places and people they meet and more about the digital communities and identities they convey through social media. I think it means different things to different people, for sure. Um, It's not very profound compared to maybe subcultures of the past. I think at first, definitely was a way of maybe escaping your real life and creating a version of yourself online that 
felt more authentic to you for some people. And I think the evolved e-girl is circling back to like Tumblr 2014 soft grunge style. And then also maybe some girls are reverting back to MySpace emo aesthetics and like ways of conducting yourself. And then as far as in culture, I think it definitely hit a saturation point and it's highly visible in pop culture. Like Bella Porch is a very famous e-girl and she also has like the most liked video on TikTok ever. And TikTok is pop culture today. But like I said, now it's become so popular that there is almost this copy and paste effect like Bella Porch. I think she's the queen of the e-girls at present, but there's really just millions at this point. But this isn't necessarily anything new. Long before TikTok began swallowing up hours of our time, distinctly digital e-girl culture was brewing on other social media platforms, informed by music, fashion, and nostalgia for a pre-internet age. Many girls were rallying against the pervasively misogynistic representations of women on the internet as a whole. It was quite scary. And I think for me, embracing the idea of not being generically attractive for the male gaze was a real light bulb moment in my life in terms of figuring out what self-identity was. Alex Brownsell co-founded Bleach London in 2010. Her line of colourful hair dyes found popularity on Tumblr as the site became a key reference for many girls in search of a new look. Yeah, interestingly, I had a Tumblr page and was doing hair at home and then I probably only had a few hundred followers as well, but I remember switching it over. We'd named the salon. We'd got a logo, which we borrowed from somewhere. (laughs) Um, um, And I posted it on Tumblr and said, hey, I've moved out of my house. We're now at 420 Kingston Road. Come in and see us. And somebody came in the next day and I was so shocked. It, It was just so impressive. We were like, wow, the power of social media that actually we've named our two chairs in the back of someone's shop bleach after the nirvana album and on twitter we actually had a really interesting kind of battle with some nirvana fans you're ripping off bleach like how could you have done this and courtney love who we don't know (laughs) we didn't know responded and said i really love what these girls are doing kurt would love it um and that's the power of social media you know you can be such a small thing and people can still see you and see your reach and it's positive and negative you know getting in trouble with the Nirvana fans not good Courtney Love uh, protecting you good I don't know if she would now because we seem bigger and we seem like a big organization now I think to a lot of people but yeah that was amazing and very right girl and very punk and very grunge. So Alex how did that kind of time on the internet inform how you started Bleach and what you were doing? By the point when Bleach was starting to emerge, I was doing a club night with my friend Bella Howard and it was called Grot Bags. And we'd, all, we'd had like long blonde hair up until that point and we were like, let's not be sexy anymore because we think it's cooler. So we cut our hair off and we dyed it blue. And our idea for that was we were sick of kind of being heckled on the street. And now looking back, it's not just dyeing your hair, is it? It's like, the way you dress, the way you hold yourself, what you talk about, all of that stuff that, you know, not wanting to attract unwanted attention. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's one thing, but I think it's about self-expression and, you know, do you want to feel uniquely yourself? And I think that's the, that's the exciting part of embracing these particular subculture genres of style and fashion is that expressing, I know I've said this a million times, but expressing your identity in that way um, that you can control is about girlhood. It's not necessarily about being a woman. So where did this all start? A blueprint for the e-girl phenomenon was the birth of X-Girl, one of the first streetwear labels for girls by girls. It was started by Sonic Youth frontwoman Kim Gordon and her friend Daisy Von Fur, who was then a stylist at X-Large. Like so many subcultural moments before it, X-Girl was ostensibly short-lived, starting in 1993 and sold in 1998. Yet its influence could be felt across generations of women, from the original X-Girls in the 90s to the E-Girls of today. As writer Rebecca Johnson put it, It was a gateway fashion drug for 90s girls like me who were anti-establishment, anti-mainstream, anti-consumer, strictly second-hand, skate-schooled, raised on DIY ethics and punk and hip-hop with a shot of indie rock. Erin McGee, founder of fashion label Made Me, remembers discovering it as a teenager. So I was going to raise and just being a kind of like a typical teenager and trying to like figure out what I identified with and what I thought was cool. And that was kind of my like first exposure to X-Girl. And I remember I I couldn't quite afford any of it. And it's funny to like look back now because I think like probably the most expensive thing was like 60 bucks. (laughs) Um, And I, I couldn't really afford much of it, but I would like save up my money and go in and buy pieces and it was just a brand I, for for obvious reasons, really identified with as a teenage girl. You know, there there wasn't many brands that spoke to that girl at that time, and X Girl really did. So it's always like held a really like special place in in my heart. In stark contrast to the oversized skatewear fits found at X Large, the boys only store founded by Beastie Boy Mike D. The original idea behind X-Girl came from Kim and Daisy's collective desire to find clothes that had the perfect fit. Pretty immediately, it gathered a cult following amongst New York's downtown stars, including Spike Jones, who produced X-Girl's one and only fashion show on the streets of New York, Chloe Sevigny, who modelled for the label, and Sophia Coppola, who even made a documentary about X-Girl on her MTV show High Octane. Ava Nurui, director of special projects at Marc Jacobs, tells us why it struck a chord with her years later. So I first discovered X-Girl through Sofia Coppola, who I uh, have always been a really big fan of. 
I first watched The Virgin Suicides when I, I was in either eighth or ninth grade. And, you know, at that point, when I was watching the film, I didn't know who she was. But afterwards, I kind of like deep dived into her like universe through like Tumblr. I think she was such a thing on Tumblr. Um, there were so many kind of like gifts and and like viral posts about her and her work. And it kind of unlocked this greater world of like culture and music and fashion for me. But I think in a, in a way, like the 90s was kind of having um, a resurgence at that time, like it always is. And um, I'm not sure why I felt so connected to her. I felt like I really saw a lot of myself in her. Um, she was kind of so like unapologetically herself. And I felt that X-Girl and like kind of the culture around it felt very easy to digest for me. Like it wasn't too exclusive. And yeah, I guess for that reason, it sort of resonated with me. We just wanted to make clothes that we would want to wear. And I mean, my thing is always just like what can fit and like how it, how flattering it is on my body. Just personally, that's all I really cared about, to tell you the truth. Hi, I'm Daisy Von Firth, and I co-founded X-Girl with Kim Gordon in the early to mid 90s, and it was a blast. So Daisy, how did it all start? Um, well, I was friends with Kim. We clicked over fashion and stuff, and then they were opening an ex-large store in New York. And I was like, oh, that'd be really cool to work there. And she knew the Beastie Boys. And so she basically helped get me the job. <laughs> it was a totally different scene than I'd ever been part of because it was like hip hop skate as opposed to indie rock. And they were so involved. And, you know, it was kind of like, I mean, I hate to say like hype beast or whatever, but it was like, it was always what was the latest t-shirt and um, what were the latest sneakers or not late latest old sneakers, you know, but that was very different from where I was coming from. Like no boys talked about labels in the indie rock scene. And yeah, like, well, the whole thing, I think one of the first things we did was what was really big then in at X large was like um, taking logos from regular companies, but then screwing them around and making them your own and like hoping not to get a cease and desist. Like in the first X-Girl t-shirt we ever made was X-Girl in the Agnes B logo. You know, one of the things that we see today with e-girls is that they're wearing the kind of super tight, really small t-shirts that I really feel like you pioneered with X-Girl. What was the idea behind it at the time? The actual baby tee started with baby t-shirts that people bought at baby clothing stores, like literally for like, like a one-year-old or two-year-old. Um, and so that we were never like that because that was a very like clingy, like maybe more like a downtown girl, like who goes to clubs thing. But we, I don't know why we, we just, you know, everything had been so oversized for so long that just having a t-shirt that fit was like radical. That's how I felt about it. I always wanted, I was the youngest, so I always wanted to be cute and like a girl. And I would have been embarrassed to even try to pretend to be a woman, sort of. I don't know. That's my own hang up. But I think that a lot of people felt the same way. And then there was all this, you know, like bikini kill and 
Bratmobile and there was all this feminism and all those people were sort of doing the same thing. Like they didn't, they were like, we can be girls. We don't have to be like woman power. It's like, I don't know. I just thought it seemed more fun to just be a girl because all these boys, like, like these boys, indie rock boys, like they were like 30. I mean, it's like the indie rock is like they, everybody was pretending they were a kid. It's just like, if the boys will be boys on their skateboards and guitars, then we'll be girls. What made X-Girl really radical was that it was for girls by girls at a time when third wave feminism was taking the US by storm, its epicentre being the right girl feminist punk movement. In fact, in 1991, the band Bikini Kill published the Riot Girl Manifesto, which was a rallying cry for more ownership and most importantly, focus on the word girl. It advocated for them to be taken seriously in socio-political spaces and to make work for themselves, for girls, by girls. Here's Daisy's sister, Julie Kayfritz, a musician with the band Pussy Galore, explaining why it all resonated at a moment that culture seemed to be changing. So Julie, what was going on in New York at this time? What was in the air? Yeah, I mean, Beastie Boys or Pussy Galore or Sonic Youth for that matter, we're just people who are interested in cool shit, right? And then we're trying to make our own cool shit. So, Julie, how do you feel that this tapped into what was going on with young women at this time in history? I think that most trends, before they're expressed as a a large trend, that there's a micro trend that is expressing some sort of cultural groundswell. So we were grabbing on to this idea of girls and and girl power and what's very strange is is like it's also going to happen to like the spice girls or something like it, it it's not that the engine behind the spice girls were actually influenced by riot girl or anything that we were doing or riffing on for that matter but the groundswell of saying this is a moment for not just women, but specifically for young women, and we're going to define ourselves differently by by grabbing this idea of girl, which had always been so um, uh, infantilized for, you know, had no agency, right? Girls did not have any agency in society, even less so than women. And so for women, you know, even if you were technically now over the age of girlhood, to still be energized with that concept. You know, you're you're not your mother's feminism. You didn't want uh, institutions of uh, motherhood and other responsibilities of just adulthood thrust on you. You were still embracing uh, the, the freedom and independence of youth. So you're this youth quake version. So it, to me, that's the thing is it makes sense because there was something really, really energized bunny about it, that it was, um, you know, associated with the, the energy and the exuberance of youth and, and that there was something really powerful about forefronting girlhood over womanhood and certainly over boys and men.
We'll be back with more from the Identity Podcast after this break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As with most subcultures of the past 40 years, the independent designers and makers associated with communities were small yet powerful in establishing the look and identity of youth culture at the time. Often they weren't big businesses, but revolved around a handful of people in a specific location. Julie Kayfritz again. If you think about New York in the 90s, there is this collision between music and fashion and filmmaking and, you know, all these different scenes in the way that any super vital time and place is going to produce where all these people are going to overlap and, and like, there's all these, these collisions. My sister Daisy first started off working at Sassy Magazine as a fashion stylist under a woman named Andrea Lynette. Andrea sort of discovers Chloe Sevigny in Washington Square Park, where she's a 17-year-old from Darien, Connecticut, hanging out in the skateboarding scene. Meanwhile, I had sort of met the Beastie Boys with Kim out in LA. The Beastie Boys had started X Large. Uh, I'm living on Prince in Lafayette. Kim and Thurston are living half a block up on Lafayette. Daisy and her husband are living two blocks down on Crosby Street. I leave my apartment on Prince Street small, so I give my apartment to Harmony and Chloe. Again, I'm sounding incredibly obnoxious, but this is how like sort of small that scene was. I, I think there was this moment of like, you're doing something really exciting and nobody really knows about it except people who are really have their finger on the pulse of things. When we started doing X-Girl, there weren't that many people doing that kind of like, I mean, for lack of a better word, word streetwear. Here's Daisy von Feld again. Maybe like 96 or three, all these jean brands started coming out that were doing sort of like the same, you know, sort of take on 70s slash Calvin Klein jeans that we had been doing. It's just everybody started getting more into clothes and being more fashionable and I feel like that sort of was the beginning of it was like mid 90s when people became much more literate and I mean now forget about it with the internet it's like everybody's hip to everything. So how does it all relate to now? How did we get from ex-girl to e-girl? Erin McGee. I mean it's there's such a clear connection I'm looking at it and listening to you at the same time I'm looking at all the photos it took me one second to understand what this is it's just yeah it's I mean it's like a it's like a kind of a second coming but now the internet's in the mix you know it's like it's really similar but it seems much more global and and and, and people really kind of swipe over x-girl and and how what a major player uh it was in kind of the foundation of streetwear 
the difference between then and now is grunge and all that stuff. You couldn't give it a personality back then. You wouldn't also be able to like do a meme around it. Alex Brownsell again. TikTok gives it life. So if you think about BB Doobie, um, who's very heavily referencing grunge and lots of TikTokers look at B and say, oh, she's amazing. And that like self-deprecation and introversion, but expressed on the internet versus how you actually present yourself to the world as well. That's the amazing thing about social media now is that you can have that kind of hidden persona. It's almost like having an avatar on TikTok. You're, you're still out there displaying it publicly, but you can do it all from being at home, which I think is is great. Like you don't have to go to a club and show off how you look, etc. now to get the validation from it. And I think that's really interesting for um, the introvert, introverted teens on the internet as well. I think also just in general, young people are kind of like yearning for the time before they were being perceived or judged and sort of this like, 90s early 2000s pre-internet time felt so much more like pure and authentic here's Ava Nirui again instant upload didn't exist at that time and people had like space and like freedom to build their identity without the fear of being like you know shamed on the internet or without being kind of like influenced by the algorithm I feel that as well I think that people you know you're constantly thinking about Every time, like, someone snaps a picture of you, you're thinking about, okay, like, where is this going to end up? And I think that really, like, impacts your sense of self and your, like, ability to truly be yourself. So I think that that's why people feel so connected to, like, the 90s, specifically, young people. Um, mm. And I think they really, like, yearn for that for that time. And I also think that there's now there's a bit of, like, rebellion against... Uh, this internet age and a lot of young people are like deleting social media, deleting Instagram. It is fascinating seeing people get so excited about like the heaven boots on TikTok. But then, you know, seeing that there's also this like embrace of IRL and like queuing at the stores or like being at, you know, events and and kind of trying to meet people in person. It can both happen at the same time. Absolutely. Like there's something that feels quite like old school about it all. (laughs) When we started talking about e-girls earlier, part of the reason why they look the way they do is because of the nostalgia for a time before the internet. Streetwear is now a billion dollar business, with luxury brands constantly drawing from skatewear and old school streetwear brands to be relevant for a younger audience. And of course, X-Girl is a pre-internet phenomenon, which makes it ripe for the nostalgia that we see on the internet today. The crazy thing about fashion, even more so than music and art, is how quickly uh, fashion consumes itself. Sort of the funny thing about what Daisy and Kim were doing was how many different nostalgic thing moments they hit, and then they were recycling themselves within two years on purpose, right? So it hadn't happened so much in the 80s, and then in the 90s, it went into hyperdrive. To me, that's cool because then it becomes, again, sort of a limited edition. 
right? You're ripping off something you saw and you're making it for yourself, which is just another version of, of, you know, a a riot girl writing something on a white t-shirt. And so I look back at it and I really think like, what, well, what a great, exciting time to be sort of in this epicenter of this like little teeny youth quake and feel that it has ripples to today. I feel like X-Girl has just been like so incredibly like influential to me in terms of um, like aesthetically, um, also just in terms of like the inclusivity factor of it, not just with like, not just the price, but also like the wearability of it. Um, I think X-Girl was so much about like function. And I think that we really um, take into account like what is like the youth uniform um, and what do people feel comfortable wearing. And I think, yeah, like X-Girl is so um, influential in that way. It's by girls for girls. You know, it was two women actually doing the brand and making it for girls just like them. You can't fake that kind of thing. It was so authentic. It was so real. Everything that they did was exactly what you wanted them to do. It's just, it, it can't be faked. And that's kind of how I feel about my own brand too. You know, like it's by me for someone like me. Mm. So you can't go wrong with it. It's like almost impossible to fuck it up. And I, th- I think, you know, like X-Girl touched on all the things, you know, it was a little a bit about music. It was a little bit about skate, a little bit about girl, you know, it, ha- it touched on all those things that you're interested in as a young girl. And no one else at the time was doing that. And it's very, and I still think today, not a lot of people are doing that. So I was thinking about that. I read Kim Gordon's book, And I mean, she talks about her shyness and kind of being like introverted and quiet. And that is obviously something that is similar to e-girls today is like being shy. Seems like she was just like not into constantly trying to iterate like, oh, you have to treat me a certain way. Like won't accept this treatment from like men. It seems like she was more just like, not taking it, but like holding her tongue and just doing her thing versus being super verbose about it, which does seem like a bit of a connection to e-girls as well. It's kind of like using what you have to make your life better. Although Daisy Von Firth and Kim Gordon kicked off a movement with the birth of X-Girl, In 1998, after running the brand for five years, they decided to sell to a Japanese streetwear distributor. However, today, its legacy lives on. Countless e-girls and vintage-obsessed thrifters are looking for the prize find. Original ex-girl garments from the 90s to wear today is the link that bonds two generations of women and cements ex-girl's place in history forever. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed. 
with research and additional writing by Amy Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths, and art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieber, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media.